Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Mark chapter 1 that I'm looking at in my Bible. I believe you will find it most helpful to be looking in Mark chapter 1 in your Bible as well. Let's all be looking together in the Word of God for these next few minutes. We'll be most benefited by spending time together here in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. As you're turning there, let me say how great it is to see everybody on this chilly Lord's Day morning and on this final Lord's Day morning of 2017. You know, it is very fitting. We began this year on January 1, right here in this building, worshiping and praising God. And now we get to book in the year doing the exact same thing, worshiping and praising God. And it's kind of hard on the very end of the year not to think about and reflect upon how good God has been to us in the past 12 months, and He most certainly has. And so it's just a wonderful day that we're able to come to a place like this and we can express our gratitude and our love and our devotion to Him for all that He's done for us. Read with me in the text this morning. In Mark, the first chapter, I'm reading here in verse number 1. In Mark 1 and in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My name is Melchi. I am a Jew living in first century Judea. I am a Jew at a time when it is not good to be Jewish. It wasn't always this way though. At one time, we Jews, we ran the world. Our empire established by King David was second to none. But now, now we are nothing. Now we are trampled on by the Romans. We have no might. We have no standing. We have no king. In fact, where is the Messiah that God has promised us for so long? Where is this Savior, this One who would come and set all things right in the power and in the spirit of King David? Where is even this forerunner that was promised who would come announcing Him? Where, O God? When, O God? It is into that world full of people just like Melchi that the Gospel of Mark announces God did something dramatic. In fact, the most dramatic move of all time. The Messiah has come. And He comes doing and healing and casting out demons and bringing the message of the Gospel. The Christ, the Son of God, has arrived. Mark's Gospel is unrivaled in portraying Jesus as a powerful and truly dominant figure who stands on the stage of world events and commands everyone's attention unlike anyone ever before. Welcome to the Gospel of Mark. And welcome to our Bible reading plan for 2018. For the past 12 months, we have been reading in the Old Testament. We have been reading about and we have been watching God's work through the Jews, through the Israelite nation, in order to bring about the Messiah. It is only natural then that we would follow that up this year by reading about the Messiah, about the time of the Messiah, about that new covenant that He would establish. Which is why for these next 12 months, we will read together those 27 books that collectively are known as the New Testament. 
If you have not already, I will encourage you, as Rick has already announced, to pick one of these up. You'll find them there on the table in the foyer. Get one of those before you leave today. And then I'll furthermore urge you to be back this evening at 6 o'clock as I'm going to have more to say about this year's particular Bible reading plan, a plan and a schedule that we have called Journey with Jesus. But of course, every journey has to have a starting point, right? Every journey has to have a beginning. And that is exactly why this morning I want to talk about the beginning. I want to talk about what Mark calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, and I want to do that right out of Mark chapter 1. In fact, if you've noticed in the reading schedule, those of you that's already got one, that's where our reading schedule is going to begin tomorrow in Mark chapter 1, and I want to give us a head start in that, in this amazing and awesome book. Because this gospel, the first gospel written, it presents a unique portrait of Jesus in power and in action calling upon all of those who would read and listen to follow Jesus and to follow Him fully. And I cannot wait to take this journey through Mark with you and through the remainder of the New Testament. Before we jump headlong into this gospel this morning, maybe we need to start just by, maybe just get a little bit of background about the book. What do we need to know about this gospel known as Mark? Well, to begin with, we are talking about a document, a book that is written by John Mark. The gospel is anonymous. If you look there in verse 1, you'll notice that it does not say, Hello, I'm John Mark. Now let me tell you this gospel. No, it's not the way it works. But there is a very long and a very solid tradition that this book is written and authored by John Mark. One Papias makes reference to that tradition. And there are several other uh, sources of evidence that point to that being the case. Most notable in that regard... John Mark was a travel companion of Paul, Acts 12.25 tells us. And it would seem as well that he was also a close companion of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5.13 tells us. Which means that the Gospel of Mark may very well contain what Peter told people about Jesus the Christ. Most important of all, though, as we talk about John Mark as the author, this is a Gospel written by an eyewitness. John Mark saw these things that we're going to read about. John Mark's mother is actually believed to have been the one who owned the home where the upper room was where the Last Supper took place. And it is that very same home that served as a gathering place for the disciples to pray together in Acts 12, verse 12. The reason I've thought about this, the reason why John Mark does not name himself specifically here in this letter is because I believe John Mark does not want the focus to be on him. He wants the focus to be squarely on Jesus. And that will be abundantly clear as we start reading here. The timing of this book is really important as well. Because Mark is probably writing this in the early to mid-60s A.D. at a time when Christianity is really going through really going through kind of a tough transition period. It has been safely nestled up until this point. Christianity has been safely nestled under the umbrella of Judaism. But the Jews are now actively pushing it out, pushing Christianity out. The Jews are saying very vocally, hey, there's a separation between us and them. They're not us. They're not part of us. They're not a legal religion like we are. And so in the 60s, Nero began to look for a scapegoat someone that he could persecute 
And Christianity provided just that very thing. And so this is written at a time of great persecution when Christians would need and were looking for a picture, a portrait of a powerful Savior in order to remind them who it was that was Lord and King. And it does seem, as you read throughout Mark, that Mark is writing, he's writing to an audience outside of Judea. Mark will, for example, he will explain customs, Jewish customs that would be unfamiliar to Gentiles and to people who are non-Jews. Like, for example, in chapter 7, Mark goes out of his way to give a lengthy explanation about the tradition of hand-washing. And of course, we're not left to wonder about what the primary point of this book is. Verse 1 that we just read cuts right to the chase, doesn't it? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This book is all about Jesus. It is about who Jesus is. It is about His power. It is about His Lordship, His Messiahship. And it presses the reader to make a decision to follow after Him. As we read in Mark together, you're going to notice some features about Mark that I think are very unique to this book. You're going to notice, for example, that it is compact, that it is vivid, that it is full of action, and that it is crisp. By compactness, I mean that this gospel is much shorter than the other three gospel accounts. By saying that it is vivid and full of action, I mean that this is the gospel that tells us about Jesus doing stuff. Jesus doing stuff all through here. There's not really any dead air. In fact, even though Mark is the shortest of the four gospels, Mark contains details about miracles that are only recorded in Mark and not anywhere else. In the style of Mark's writing, it is in fact... Crisp. It is fast moving. There's nothing in the book of Mark here about, about his birth or about his childhood or starting with a genealogy. Nope, none of that. Mark just jumps straight to John the Baptist and then motors right into the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the key word in Mark that you'll want to notice as you're reading Mark is the word immediately. Immediately. Forty-two times the word immediately is used in Mark's gospel. Compared to Matthew, who only uses that word seven times, and Luke, who only uses that word once. Luke doesn't do anything immediately. Forty-two times, though, Mark is going to say that Jesus did something, and He did it right away. So get ready. Mark has a story to tell. It is a story to tell of Jesus entering this world, and then rocking this world to its very foundations. And this very first chapter, it's really going to set the stage for the other 15 chapters that are to follow. And so let's read together here. Read with me beginning in verse number 1. In verse number 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. I want you to please notice, I want to say a quick word here about that word that's used in verse 1, the word gospel. We often say that that means good news, the good news about Jesus. And that is certainly so. But you need to understand that in the New Testament, in the New Testament world, that word did not originally mean good news about Jesus. In the Roman world, the word gospel meant good news, good news about the Caesar. Like, for example, when a new Caesar was born, that was considered gospel, good news for all the citizens of Rome. And so Mark borrows that word 
This word that announces something really big is happening, and he applies it to the coming of Jesus and this radically new state of affairs for mankind that Jesus would bring. And Mark begins just by declaring him right out of the gate, the Son of God. You think about that compared to the other Gospels. Matthew begins by declaring him the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. John goes about the task of proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark doesn't do any of that. Mark just says it. He is the Son of God. Here it is. It doesn't begin with Jesus' birth. It doesn't begin with Abraham. It doesn't begin with David. No, in fact, it goes back even further than that. Way before that, it began in the mind of God. All the way in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, Jesus is part of the outworking of God's great plan. And in fact, there is a forerunner that is to come. Mark actually joins in these verses. He joins three different texts together. One from Exodus, one from Isaiah, and one from Malachi. And all of these texts herald the one who is to come, whose job, whose main mission is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And indeed, this forerunner does come. That's verse 4 now. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Think for a moment here about baptism. I want you to think about the fact that while we do not know everything about proselyte baptism, there is some evidence to suggest that whenever a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, to proselyte as a Jew, one of the requirements was he had to be baptized. Think now about how that would play to a Jewish audience. You're a Jew. You think you're in. You think you're already good with God. Nope, actually you're not. You're going to need to be baptized. You're going to need to do what you make the Gentiles do so that you can be in a right relationship with God now. Nevertheless, verse 5 tells us that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to John and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This fellow John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit of Elijah the prophet, he makes a huge splash. And that is why I began this morning with that fictional character Melchai. Because if you knew the mood of the times back then, if you knew how Jews felt living in first century times, you would understand then why John gets such a big reaction at this time. Because John comes along and he announces, hey, God's at work. God's doing something here. And the people were hungry to hear that. People wanted to hear that and people wanted to be a part of what God was doing. Verse 6 now. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. That's what makes him similar to Elijah. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The stage is set. One is coming who will bring the very Spirit of God. You think of the headlines and the news that that would make. That God is at work. It's been silent for 400 years. And now God finally speaks. He speaks through His chosen prophet John the Baptist. The silence is broken and so people come flooding out to hear this good news. To hear this message. This idea of the Spirit that's mentioned here in verse 8. 
and particularly this idea of the baptism of the Spirit, it will be used again in Acts chapter 2 and then in Acts chapter 10. But maybe what we ought to see here as we think about the Spirit is we ought to think about the Spirit as it was associated with Joel chapter 2. About God's promise that He would give His Spirit to all people during the time of the Messiah. That the blessings in the Messianic age, they were connected in the prophets to an outpouring of God's Spirit. You just watch that connection right here in verse 8, right on into verse 10, and then right into verse 12 as well. Here's the baptism of Jesus, first of all, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Think about this. Jesus walked some 80 miles just to be baptized. This was not, well, I'm traveling this way, and so I guess I'll stop to be baptized. No, Jesus traveled on foot 80 miles in order to be baptized. You think Jesus saw baptism as being something that was important? Absolutely, Jesus saw it as being important. That what God was doing through John the Baptist, it was vitally important. And Jesus shows up and says, I want to be a part of what's going on here. In fact, Jesus says, I'm going to be at the center of what's going on here. Verse 10 now, And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That expression there in verse 10 about the heavens being torn open, that's really kind of an odd expression here. It is an expression that's used a couple of other times in Scripture, but usually it's used to describe God's judgment and God's wrath. You know, we think about Jesus' baptism as being this beautiful, calm, and serene kind of moment. But maybe it wasn't so calm and so serene. The heavens were ripped apart, the Bible says. And God's Spirit descends upon Jesus. And the Lord thunders His voice from the heavens. And as He speaks, the Lord actually combines two passages from the Old Testament. You are my beloved Son. That's taken from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. That's a royal psalm. That is a psalm of the King. And then the second part of the verse, in whom I am well pleased, that comes out of Isaiah 42 and verse 1. A passage that describes God's suffering servant. Put those two things together. Here's the royal king who's going to suffer. And that is indeed a foreshadowing of what is to come for Jesus. So then, verse 12 says, The Spirit then immediately drove him out into the wilderness... He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Notice here that Mark doesn't give a whole lot of detail about the temptation of Jesus. Mark just flat out says, Jesus, he just dealt with it. Satan showed up, started to cause trouble, and Jesus dealt with that. And I want you to please note as well that Mark is actually the only gospel writer that tells us that Jesus was with the wild animals while he was in the wilderness. I wonder if maybe that is just kind of a contextual note to help us to see just how courageous Jesus was, how strong he was, how powerful Jesus was. Out in the wilderness for 40 days with a bunch of wild critters. Doesn't bother Jesus. Jesus is able to take care of Satan and wild animals and all of those things. By the time I get to the end of verse 13, I want to know more about this Jesus character, don't you? 
Well, if so, Mark meets that demand because beginning in verse 14, Mark then begins the record of Jesus' public ministry. Verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Maybe you want to highlight in your Bible that expression, after John was arrested. Because that's actually a time note. Because maybe a year, maybe even a little bit longer than a year, has gone by between verse 13 and verse 14. Mark does move in that rapid succession that we're used to as we read his writing. But this is a time marker that Mark leaves us to let us know that some time has passed between the baptism and temptation stuff and now the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so, after roughly a year, Jesus comes to Galilee and He proclaims, verse 15, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Please do not read verse 15 where it says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Please do not in your mind read that as the time is fulfilled and the church is at hand. The church is but one metaphor in the Bible to describe the saved people of God. There are many such metaphors. The body of Christ. The temple of God. The kingdom of God is one of those. But when we decide to use one metaphor, and we want to substitute that into place for all of those metaphors, what's going to happen is we're going to lose much of what the Bible is trying to say. Jesus did not say here that the church was at hand. In fact, the church was not yet at hand. The church isn't coming until Acts chapter 2. But the kingdom... The kingdom is at hand. Because the kingdom speaks to what? The kingdom speaks to the king. The king and his rule and his reign in the hearts and lives of men and women. And that was, in fact, at hand. Because when's the time to obey Jesus? When's the time to obey Jesus? Right now is the time to obey Jesus. Obey Jesus this very moment. And in fact, Mark gives us an illustration of some guys who did just that. They started obeying Jesus right there that moment. Verse 16 now. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What an influential figure Jesus is. That Jesus can draw people to him. That he can speak a word and people just drop everything that they're doing to follow after him. People give up everything in order to obey Jesus. Come to Capernaum next, verse 21 says... Capernaum is actually going to serve as a base of operations for Jesus. He will preach from here and he will base out of here for some time. Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. Verse 21 says then that they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes that are mentioned here are not merely... The copyists. 
We, we think of scribes and that's immediately what we think of is we think of the guys who, who copied down the Scriptures and that's just what they did all day long. They just copied the Scriptures over and over again. Now, scribes here are not just copies, but they are also the teachers. The teachers and the interpreters of the law. And the way the scribes and the Pharisees taught in Jesus' day was their M.O. was to reference what the local rabbis were saying. They would get up and stand in front of an audience of people and they would say, Now, Rabbi Gamaliel says such and such and such and so. Rabbi Akiba says this and this and this and that. One fellow actually said that the scribes, they were enslaved to quotation marks because they were always quoting from other men. Doesn't that make Jesus very different from them? Jesus wasn't quoting from men. Jesus spoke the Word. Jesus preached with authority, the Bible says. Jesus stood in front of people and says, I'm going to tell you what God wants you to do. I'm telling you what the kingdom of God is all about. And that is why verse 22 says there that the people were astonished at His teaching. People were thunderstruck at His words. When Jesus preached, people were not sitting in the audience just yawning and falling asleep. Nope, not with Jesus. People left the synagogue after hearing Jesus preach and they said, Did you hear what He said? Can you believe it? Have you ever heard anything like that before? Verse 23, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So notice here, Jesus is actually revealing himself now in two distinct ways. With mighty words and with mighty works. Words and works. Those two things are working in conjunction with one another. Verse 27 now. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. And at once or immediately, His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This passage here is the very first reference to Jesus' teaching and or His miracles causing amazement, astonishment. In fact, maybe a good practice as you're reading through Mark is just underline all the places where it says that the crowds were amazed or astonished at the things Jesus said and at the things Jesus did. Maybe to update that word for our young people, what verses 27 and 28 is saying is that Jesus went viral. Jesus was trending worldwide. Everybody's talking about Him. Everybody's interested in Him. Everybody wants to see and hear Him. Verse 29 now. And immediately He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told Him about her. And so He came and He took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. Verse 32 now, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I picture this in my mind. All these people coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. 
would have been really easy for Jesus to just say, come on folks, it's, it's late. I'm too worn out. I've been teaching all day in the synagogue. I've been performing all kinds of miracles and healing folks all day long. I just need some rest here. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus was always willing to help. And this does seem to be at the close of the Sabbath day, which means that people might have been concerned about carrying their loved ones to this house and doing that on the Sabbath. That might be interpreted by some as as being work. And so they'll wait until the Sabbath is over at sundown, and then everybody's going to flood to Jesus. Everybody's going to come to Jesus for the healing that they look for. He has power. He can do this. Jesus is able. Verse 35. Then rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and He went out to a desolate place. And there He prayed. Now I'll be honest with you, as I was reading this the first time, that verse seemed a little bit unexpected. We look at Jesus and we wonder, man, what is, what is the source of His amazing power? How is Jesus able to do all these incredible things? How's he able to just keep running and going a hundred miles an hour just in every which direction? Verse 35 gives some insight to that. Jesus makes time to pray. That's what centers him. That's what focuses him. He makes time with his heavenly Father. Verse 36 now. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that. Preaching, that is why I came out. Listen to me very carefully here. Works are important. The works that Jesus was doing supported the words that He spoke. Those works that He did gave credibility to the message that He spoke. Those miracles supported the message. But Jesus says it is the message that is the most important thing. Jesus came to teach and preach the Word of God. His purpose in life is not to heal as many people as possible and make the world a better place physically. No, Jesus' purpose is to draw people to the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is His number one priority. Verse 39, So He went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It is interesting that again and again, Mark notes here about demon possession. You know, demons just, they just flummoxed everybody in New Testament times. Nobody knew how to handle demon possession. There was no answer. There was no antidote for demon possession. But Jesus, Jesus comes along and He answers that problem without any difficulty at all. If anybody ever had a question as to whether or not Jesus had authority, this would have settled it. Because Jesus had authority over the biggest, most dangerous, most difficult problem that plagued that society, the thing that nobody had an answer for, Jesus had an answer for it. Jesus had power over the demons, and in fact, Jesus even had power over the most disgusting and just problematic of all diseases. And that's the very next verse, verse 40. Then a leper came to him. And the leper implored him and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately 
the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Eight different times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to be described as a man of power and authority, but a man who has compassion and care as he touches people. Jesus is incredible. He is awesome and He is very dominant. But you know what? Jesus was still willing to reach out to people who were in need and touch them. So then, verse 43 says, that Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And He said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus tells him there in verse 44, Hey buddy, you still need to obey the law. These did not come in order to trample all over the law of Moses and just toss the Old Testament aside. No, there were instructions as to what a leper was to do. Jesus honored that. Jesus honored the Scriptures at all times. Somebody maybe would wonder there about Jesus. You know, Why did Jesus tell this guy to, to stay quiet? Why did he tell this guy not to say anything to anybody? You know, Wouldn't you want to, to have him spread the news? Get, get the word out that, hey, the Messiah is here. Wouldn't that be the prudent thing to do? Well, look at what happens when this guy disregards Jesus' instruction. Verse 45 now. But this man went out. He began to talk freely about it. And he began to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This man thought that he was doing Jesus a favor, but instead, now Jesus can't even go into the main town. Jesus' fame and the wonder and excitement surrounding Him, it is spreading like wildfire. And so, first chapter of Mark ends with a bang. In fact, I'm almost out of breath just reading and watching Jesus in Mark chapter 1. And I'm actually chomping at the bit to see what's going to happen in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, which we'll read this week. However, before we close the book on chapter 1... Can we make just a couple of quick applications to make sure that we're taking from Mark chapter 1 what Mark wants us to take from chapter 1? I believe if you want to keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing in Mark chapter 1 is, wow! Did you see that? Did you hear that? Have you ever seen, have you ever heard anything like that before? Again and again, it's just over and over again, Mark wows us with Jesus and with His power and authority. And I'll tell you, I believe that us and people in our world today need a big dose of being wowed by Jesus again. You think about it, today in our world, Jesus has been reduced in, in pictures and even in just mental images in people's minds to, to some kind of a wimp. I think in some people's mind, Jesus is kind of just one notch above the bearded lady. That He's just this weak, sickly, pale, almost effeminate fella. You know, he just, he, just, he just wouldn't hurt a flea. He wouldn't hurt even the smallest little fly. Not in Mark's Gospel. Men, maybe this is the Gospel that we really need to focus on. To see Jesus commanding with authority and with power. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Not in Mark's Gospel, He's not. Jesus says, you follow Me. And people drop everything they're doing to follow Him. Jesus speaks to a demon, come out of Him, and it comes out. Jesus says to a disease, get out of that man's body, it escapes His body. 
everyone is amazed and awed by Jesus. And Mark chapter 1 helps to remind us, it helped to remind me just how awesome Jesus is. Secondly then, whenever we are awed and wowed by Jesus, that means naturally that we ought to respond to Jesus. There in verses 16 and 17 and 18, what we see are some people responding to Jesus. And that means following Jesus. And that means fishing with Jesus. Fishing for men. And sometimes that even means, verse 20, sometimes that even means leaving your family behind. But when you do that, when you respond to Jesus in that way, that then opens up the door for so many opportunities to serve and to labor and to do the work of the Lord. I often wonder, what if these four guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what if these guys had said, no. No, Jesus, that's a nice offer, but you know... This is a really busy time of year for us. You know, this is when the fishing business is kind of at its height here. You know, I mean, Jesus, maybe some other time we'll follow you. Not only would they have missed the chance to just be with the Messiah, but that means as well that they would have missed all that came after that. How they, as Jesus' ambassadors, how they would change the world in the book of Acts and even beyond. Follow me. That's an invitation. That's an invitation to a future of serving this incredible Jesus. And I want you to please note in verse 15 that this invitation, it is wrapped around the idea of repenting and believing the gospel. Which leads right into this third observation, and that is, we better be doing what Jesus says. We better obey Jesus. Right here, this guy at the end of the chapter this healed leper that Jesus had given specific instructions to, this guy thinks he knows better than Jesus and he ends up just kind of messing everything up. He slows down Jesus' ministry. He impedes the very cause of Christ. If we're going to follow Jesus, that means we better do what He says. Why? Because He is awesome. Because He does make us say, wow, He is the Lord. You know, nobody watches Jesus in Mark the first chapter and says, you know what, I think I need to help that guy out a little bit. I think I need to correct some of the things that he says. I think I need to go behind him and kind of clean up some of those miracles that he left undone. I need to tweak his message a little bit. I need to help him out a little bit along the way. No. You come to the end of Mark chapter 1 and the only conclusion is Jesus is in charge. And since He's in charge, I better do what He says. I better obey Jesus. And so the question comes. Are you wowed by Jesus? If so, have you responded to Jesus? Are you living in obedience to Jesus? If the answer to those questions is no this morning, if the answer to that first question is no... I really don't know what else I can do for you to show you from the Scriptures why you ought to be wowed by Jesus. If the answer to that second question is no, well, actually, that's probably a lie. Because you are responding to Jesus one way or the other. It's either a yes or it's a no. That third question, though, that's the one that's going to vary from person to person. Are we obeying Jesus? Only you know. Only the Lord knows that, whether you are truly obeying Him. If you want to start serving Him, start obeying Him, start living for Him this morning, 
then you can do that, and I'll just borrow Mark's favorite word, you can do that immediately. You can do that today. All things are ready this morning for you to become a child of God, for you to start following after Jesus. If you will repent and turn from sin, if you will confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, and if you will be baptized in water, there's a pool of water back there, garments in the back, people that are ready to assist, that can all be done in a relatively short period of time. You can become a follower of Jesus Christ. You can begin serving Him this day. Brother or sister, if there is sin in your life, or if you've not been serving Jesus as wholeheartedly and as committed as you ought to, you need to repent. You need to come back to Him. You need to ask for His forgiveness. You need to begin serving Jesus in a better way. You have that opportunity right now. Will you do it? Will you do it immediately? Let's do that. Let's do it right now while we stand and while we sing.